0: It's the season of giving, so give yourself a little extra Christmas cheer. Go on, you deserve it. Don't just buy a copy of my new book for all the Christmas lovers in your life, buy one for yourself as well. Christmas Past, The Fascinating Stories Behind Our Favorite Holidays Traditions is available on hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. Find it wherever books are sold. Back in the late 19th century, many people in Germany were worried about the deforestation associated with harvesting Christmas trees. This was before the time when Christmas trees were grown as a commercial crop at a large scale. So most Christmas trees, and we're talking about a lot of Christmas trees, were just cut down in the forest. The effects were real, and the concerns legitimate. So what to do? Well, would you believe that goose feathers were part of the solution? Or at least one of the solutions? Someone got the idea to take some goose feathers, dye them green, attach them to branches made of wire, and wrap those wire branches around a dowel. Voila! A feather tree! They ranged in height from several inches to six feet tall. They never shed their needles, you could reuse them year to year, and it was good for conservation. Even if it was, presumably, not so good for geese. Feather trees are among the first examples of artificial Christmas trees, and they were quite a hit in Germany. And later, they even made a respectable showing here in America, where they were available in department stores in the 1920s. The next evolution of artificial Christmas trees came from an equally surprising source. Toilet brushes. In the 1930s, the company credited with producing the first toilet brush dreamed up yet another use for all of those animal hair brush bristles that they used for their product. Dye them green, attach them to wooden dowels to resemble branches, which were then attached to a trunk. A brush tree. Now all of this innovation was happening across the Atlantic. Feather trees originated in Germany, the brush trees were created by an English company. But soon it would be America's turn. The 1950s arrived, a decade of invention that brought us innovations like the transistor radio and the first computer hard drive, and novelties like the hula hoop and Mr. Potato Head. It was a decade of modern living and space-age technology. And the only artificial tree that could reflect all of that, and I do mean literally reflect it, was one made of aluminum. The aluminum Christmas tree took the notion of artifice to its limit, and marked a special, albeit brief, period in Christmas history. One that was ushered in along with one famous children's character, and ushered out along with another. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. So which famous children's character is somehow connected to the beginning of the Aluminum Christmas Tree era?
1: A version of the Aluminum Christmas Tree as we know it was debuted in New York City at what's known as the International Toy Fair. That same year, the Barbie doll was also debuted at the very same Toy Fair.
0: That's Theron Georges. He's an airline pilot in Houston, Texas, but... In my spare time... I have one of the world's largest collections of vintage aluminum Christmas trees. He's also the author of several books about aluminum Christmas trees, including the Evergreen book. Now, you might be wondering at this point who that other famous children's character is, the one connected to the end of the aluminum tree era. We'll get to that, but let's begin at the beginning. The first example of aluminum trees mass-produced and offered for sale were in 1956.
1: The aluminum Christmas tree, and I love this about it, is a definitively unique American invention. By 1956, an individual was producing them on a large production line basis out of Chicago, and that was Chester Henkes and his product was called a Starlight by Revlis.
0: And as with so many new Christmas trends past and present, the aluminum tree evoked strong reactions.
1: When the aluminum Christmas tree came out, the American public was almost immediately polarized into camps. Either you loved them or you loved to hate them, and there seems to be very little
0: middle ground with them. Now the next question is, why? Why aluminum? Those feather trees and brush trees weren't realistic-looking, but hey, at least they were green. And they might have been somewhat convincing with the right lighting and decoration. But aluminum? Not a chance. But that's okay, because realism wasn't the point.
1: Aluminum Christmas trees were absolutely products of the space age. Not only are they constructed of bright, shiny aluminum, which was a relatively new, affordable, malleable material, They were also the product of a generation that was deeply involved in the space race. Um, You look at cars of the period, for example, with all of their chrome, not only their fenders, but different sorts of flares and lighting. That was
0: an aesthetic
1: that was popular
0: for that time. That gleaming chrome aesthetic reigned supreme, even as other styles came on the market. Within a few years, different colors like green and pink or even combinations of colors became available. Some aluminum trees even came pre-decorated with ornaments. And today, we're used to buying artificial trees that come pre-lit, but no such thing was possible with aluminum trees. Aluminum and electrical wiring don't exactly pair well together. So rather than stringing lights on an aluminum tree, you would project light at it. The color wheel became a must-have accessory. This was a spinning disk with four translucent color panels, typically red, green, blue, and yellow. Behind the disk sat a light bulb, so when pointed at the aluminum tree, it projected a swirling kaleidoscope of light and color. And the popularity of the color wheel helps to explain in part why plain silver trees remained most popular.
1: By far, above and beyond, remains and always has been the most reflective color in the palette. And it's portrayed all of those colors that are projected by the color wheel with the greatest fidelity.
0: By the end of the decade, aluminum trees were selling so well that many business-minded people just couldn't help but take note. Before you knew it, there were maybe 30 companies competing to make aluminum trees.
1: The one company which undoubtedly was most successful at the manufacture, distribution, and sale of aluminum Christmas trees is the Aluminum Specialty Company of
0: Manitowoc, Wisconsin, and their trademark tree, which is simply called an Evergreen. The Aluminum Specialty Company had found just the right balance of price and quality. They made a tree worth having that a lot of people could afford. Other makers competed by offering high-end or low-end models, but Evergreen truly became the leader of the industry. That is, while the industry lasted.
1: The peak of the aluminum Christmas tree is said to be about 1965 or 1966. And by 1970, 71, 72, they're
0: completely passé. The aluminum Christmas tree just wasn't cut out for long-term inclusion in Christmas. It was an idea, and an aesthetic, very much of its time. Its appearance was so sudden, and so dramatically different from what we were used to, so deliberate in its form and function, so polarizing, that its place in Christmas history is that of a fashion trend, a fad. And its roughly 10 years on the market is a pretty good run before it fizzled out. But did it actually fizzle out? We're getting to the end of our story, so now it's time to reveal that other children's character, the one connected to the end of the aluminum tree era. When the
1: 1965 Charlie Brown Christmas special came out, in which Charlie Brown makes a choice between a fashionable but fake aluminum Christmas tree and then the small, real green tree, it said that that was the beginning of the end for aluminum Christmas trees.
0: Did Charlie Brown really help push the aluminum tree out the door? We'll never know, of course, but at least a Charlie Brown Christmas is to this day one of the things that helps preserve the aluminum Christmas tree in our Christmas consciousness. And another someone who's helping to do that is our friend Thurin Georges and his large collection.
1: We have, for the past three or four years, had a very large display which is marketed as space-age Christmas trees in Houston, Texas. The venue where we present the display app is called the 1940 Air Terminal Museum. It's was offered completely free of charge to the city of Houston as well as to the world, if you will. And they loan us space both on a second floor and on a first floor to put up the aluminum Christmas trees and all of the museum poster boards that go along with them.
0: Well, with people like Theron honoring the aluminum Christmas tree in all its glory and a new generation discovering it, there's something of a renaissance taking place. The community of collectors and historians interested in this space is growing. It is
1: remarkable how many people in the last two or three years have joined these collecting communities. There are so many people in the vintage aluminum Christmas tree collecting community now. We have people like myself who are writers, historians, and researchers. We have museums and collectors throughout the United States. When will it end? I don't know, but um, we are definitely riding the high of that popularity wave
0: right now. Well, whether a tree is aluminum or the genuine article makes no difference at all to old Santa Claus, he'll leave his gifts under the tree no matter what. That is, if you're on the nice list. He keeps tabs on you, you know, and he remembers you long after your childhood ends. If you run into him as an adult, don't be surprised if you have an encounter not unlike that of our friend Evan in California.
2: I have a memory from the early 80s, I think I probably was 10 and my sister was eight. And we were living in Annapolis, Maryland on Navy housing there. And one night we came home in December uh, and we actually saw a Santa Claus walking across a field near our house. And he changed direction and came over our way. And he came up to us and addressed us both by first and last name and asked if we'd been good, and we said we had, and he just kept on his way. And we accused our parents of maybe setting that up, and they denied it, of course. And even now, decades later, and you know, we're both adults... And our parents don't, rem- don't remember that. So to this day, we don't know how that happened and
0: why. I'm sure you've got some stories about meeting Santa. We took baby Dashel to meet him for the first time last year, and he did what a lot of babies do. Heck, there's even a picture of me doing it as a baby. He freaked out and started crying. Let's hope he plays it cool next time around. Share your Santa memories or any Christmas memory with the rest of the Christmas Past family. Record a short voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it to about a minute, clean and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. I'll be back again in just a few days with an all-new story from Christmas Past. Until then, let me remind you that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California, by yours truly, Brian Earle. Thank you so much to Theron Georges, Evan in California, and thank you for listening. Hey, check the show notes in this episode for links to info about Thurin's aluminum tree displays and his book. Also in the show notes are links to where you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget, you can drop me a line anytime with a Christmas memory or just to say hi. Again, that address is christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're really feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people discover this show? It's as easy as telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do leave a review, I'll send you a Christmas past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card as my way of saying thanks. Reach out for details on that, and until we meet again, may your days be merry and bright.